What's up, Charleston? This is the Healthy Charleston Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Eve Gigi, where we talk all things health-related. We're going to talk about all sorts of health information, as well as, hopefully, clear up all sorts of terrible health misinformation. What's up, Charleston? This is the Healthy Charleston Podcast. Bad start. Healthy Charleston Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Eve, Gigi, and Dr. Wes Hendricks, where we talk all things health-related. We're going to talk about all sorts of information, as well as all sorts of terrible misinformation. So I am super excited about today's podcast. We have... Dr. Andrew McMarlin. All right. he. um, I've been connected through... Um, Dr. McMarlin through multiple ways. We've sent him a bunch of patients. Um, we've had a lot of success um, with him and his practice. We've also connected on multiple uh, entrepreneurial levels as well. I've had a ton of great conversation conversation with him, and I really think he's going to bring a ton of value to the podcast and to anybody who listens as we really dig into you know healthcare and what health means and everything that surrounds that. So I'm super excited. So what, how we've started previously with everybody, right, is I really, I like to know where people come from, right? So like, what was maybe a little bit of your story growing up? And you can kind of frame that as to like, how you learned more about what it is to exercise and be healthy, or like, you know, was your dad a doctor or, you know, what kind of started that whole process? And you don't have to go all the way, if you want to, you can, all the way from childhood, all the way to like where you are now. Although we'll dig into everything in bits there, and pieces. There's quite a lot to it's it. It's a long story. As you get older, that story obviously gets longer. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, and we, you know, we have a whole hour, so we, we, can, we got plenty. So, yeah, just maybe just tell us a little bit about your childhood and, like, you know, did you play sports growing up? What's that? Yeah, so my uh, my childhood, I moved around a good bit. Grew up mostly in Hawaii and uh, in Virginia. Uh, Dad was, was an Army doc, and uh, uh, both parents had been uh, athletes in college, uh, and I... Uh, even uh, on my mother's side, there's some pretty famous athletes. They were uh, kind of Olympic swimmers and, and uh, water polo players. And I think my great grandfather was two-time Olympic gold medalist, 1904 Olympic team captain and water polo captain. And good genes yeah. right there. Water yeah. polo, I heard, is yeah. vicious. It is, and, it, and it's it used to even more, be even more vicious. Yeah. You used to have the the ball was only about three quarters inflated, so you could swim underwater, and they would beat the heck out of each other underwater and try to essentially try to drown each other. Right. So uh, there's this uh, kind of apocryphal story in my family about the, uh, my grandfather had been the water polo team captain at the Naval Academy and his dad, who was this crusty old guy who had the great swimmer, obviously from winning the Olympic uh, hundred meter in, in uh, 1904, cool. uh, was the captain of the New York athletic club. And uh, the national championship in 1930 was between Naval Academy and New York Athletic Club. And the, between the two of them, they scored all the team goals for the individual teams. And apparently at some point they were fighting underwater. My great grandfather had to pull my grandfather out because essentially he drowned him underwater. It was like, this is the, that's the story, had to resuscitate him. Oh my goodness. Uh, but uh, but uh, I, also that, that great grandfather's uh, uh, other son, so a great uncle had been an Olympic couple time Olympic swimmer. Uh, another cousin had been an Olympic swimmer back in uh, in the twenties, thirties, and and uh, so big swimming background with uh, with that side of the family, my mother's side, and she was a swimmer in college, and my dad was a discus uh, thrower in, in college, and uh, not a real big guy, but uh, but apparently good technique and, and good strength for weight. Are they but, usually uh, really big guys? Like I picture they, when I they, see discus, big. right? They're, yeah, they tend to be big. I don't, yeah. they, I don't think they're generally <laughs> yeah. as big as the uh, as the, the shot putters who tend to be huge. Yeah, right. But discus, I mean, there's a not that there's not a lot of technique in, in shot put, but discus, I mean, it's really you're getting your body acceleration as you're throwing the uh, uh, that discus. So he was like 6'3", 210 or 20, and actually had this the William & Mary uh, school record for discus and for about 30 years after the, his, after he was throwing in the sixties. But, uh, so that was, athletics was always part of the family had uh, a super athletic siblings. My brother was a, uh, college level, uh, soccer player, older sister started running marathons when she was 12 or 13. Um, 
So, um, so very uh, kind of generally athletic family. And it was, it was always assumed that you would be playing soccer or swimming or doing something growing up. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, I always, I'm going to do a lot of asides just happens, but like, I think it's really cool. I wish I could have done like the shot put or the discus. I feel like those are really cool. Like <laughs> you were deprived as a child. Oh, so, so deprived. Yeah. Right. Um, but I mean, just those kind of different kind of movement patterns, I think is really cool. Of Like let's learn how to throw a discus or even like pole vault and stuff like that. I feel like I wish that was more ingrained into, you know, developing your movement and your stuff kind of as a child. I feel like that needs to happen more often. What do you think? Like you just like handstands or PE classes need to start implementing shot putting and discus throwing. Hey, if that's a win for, I think it would be a win. <laughs> I don't sure. disagree. You know, I was in a school where it actually did. I mean, yeah. it, uh, so I went to the Punho school in Hawaii for, for a number of years when, when I lived there. And then part of PE was you would learn shot put and we didn't do discus and we didn't do hammer, but, but we did have a uh, PE and we, or uh, the shot put and we would have a, uh, um, uh, basically a field day where you would, you'd have teams where you kind of separate the, your class into, into different teams and you'd have people doing, uh, the, uh, uh, hurdles and shot put and long jump. That would be uh, so much fun. We just yeah. threw water balloons yeah. at my, my yeah. field. Yeah. We played yeah. dodgeball. We played jail dodgeball. Like what did I learn from that? And Nothing. You know, that can be know. a tough sport. True. true. Dodgeball like oh. 20 years ago was intense. Now they I took would... away those like really like. The, like like the water balls. polo balls. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, had to, I went to the hospital once for dodgeball. Oh my goodness. It had a, they used to be, at my school, used to use these these really super inflated water polo balls that were really hard. Like the playground ball. Playground right? ball, yeah. but hard. And, and, uh, ball, right? and, no. and But uh, uh, the neat thing is if they hit your fingers just right, it'll, I had a, I was looking in the wrong direction and got hit between the fingers and it kind of split, split the, the uh, skin open down Ooh. about two inches down to the bone and had to get, I think it was like 17 stitches to, to get everything sewed up. But uh, you don't think about dodgeball injuries. No, uh, with, no. Uh, sending, sending me to the hospital. It was, <laughs> yeah, it's like the one dodgeball troll is going to get mad. I said that. You know what I mean? Oh, oh we just stuff. lost the listener. <laughs> so, all right. So um, swimming, and I, obviously I know a little bit mm. about your background. So it seems like a lot of swimming was in the background. Yeah. And what got you from s- swimming, being in the water, to now being on top of the water, you know what I mean? And well, doing kind of what your sport is and maybe tell us a little yeah, bit about know, that. So I, I swam uh, high school uh, varsity swimming just for the first uh, year or so, and then was tennis. And, and I thought I was going to play soccer in high school, had really bad Osgood slaughters. And Me too. Was, yeah. yeah, it was, well, I was told I couldn't play soccer anymore. So immediately I started playing tennis four or five hours a day, which makes no medical sense to do that. <laughs> right, both uh, cutting sports. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but um uh, and then going to college at the Naval Academy, I assumed that I would play uh, tennis in college or run cross country in college because those are sports I enjoyed in high school. And um, third year of plebes or three, third week of plebe summer, uh, they take an hour break each day from screaming at you to where you get to learn a new sport where like a lot of the sports have walk on. So squash and, and, and crew. Um, and among, among other sports where the whole class one by one goes out to the, uh, to these different events. And so my, the, my day at the, at the boathouse, um, the, the group that we had was too big for all of us to go on the barges, uh, out on the, out on the river. So they put half of us up in this, uh, trophy room up in, uh, in the boathouse and you walk in and on the walls, you have the pictures of the 1920 Olympic gold medal eight, and the 1952 Olympic gold medal eight, the, the Naval Academy varsity boat that represented the U.S. at the Olympics, okay. uh, and the 1960 uh, Olympic eight, and uh, and then pictures of different guys who were on the national team, and pictures of of all the different college championships. And there's this prow of a boat uh, that says national champions 59, 60, except it was 1859, 18, So there's a lot of tradition there. Sure. And they put a video in of the 84 Olympics, which was only a few years earlier. And they show like the double skull final where the American boat comes from behind to win the, the gold medal. I actually ended up rowing a few times with the, the bow, a man on that boat. Uh, and then, uh, the single final, uh, where Purdy Karpinen, this uh, Finnish three-time Olympic gold medalist in the single, uh, is able to walk through the East German uh, single sculler uh, in the last like 500 meters. And just the the amazing kind of passion involved with it. It was amazing. This this East German guy kept winning world championships, but the Finn would 
win at the Olympics each time. That's cool. And you could see with like 20 strokes to go, the, the, the Finn is a giant guy. It was like 6'8", 260. Every single stroke, he's moving about two inches on the East German guy. And right as he's passing him with still like another 10 strokes to go, you know he's going to win. Uh, and the East German guy has just this massive anguish, pain on his face as he knows one more time he's losing again at the Olympic <laughs> final. Um, and it was like, that is so cool. And so we got in the barge and I paid attention and picked it, picked, felt like it really easy and natural. And one of the coaches said, Hey, you, are you one of the recruited rowers you rode before? Uh, and I said, uh, Nope, but I am a rower now. Right. And so, and I decided, you know, I want to see how good I can get at rowing and, uh, had a really super bunch of guys we had, I think initially there was 140 guys who tried out for the heavyweight, uh, freshman team. And they cut it down to 80 that fall and down to 48 and then down to 24. And, and I kept making the, the cut each time and was really lucky enough to be in some really good boats. Um, just missed by a hair winning the national championship as a freshman uh, four and then won the nationals the next couple of years and the, the four and then the, the eight and a really, really super bunch of guys. And um Four and eight being meters. four, four, well, four, four man boat. So, two, two, that, yeah. So, two thousand meter racing. So, okay. so about a mile and a quarter. Uh, so, four, four rowers and a and a coxswain, the little guy in the back who steers, or or now they have boats for there in the front also. And then the eight is with a, a steersman and eight rowers. And in sweep rowing, um, you have you have one. Each person has a big oar, so you have both both hands on one oar, and it goes off to one side, the port side or the starboard side. Mm -hmm. uh, in sculling, uh, you don't have coxswains. You have, each person has two oars. So sweep rowing, you have a pair. So to keep boats from going in circles, you have, you have with these you have even numbers. You have a pair, four, or an eight. And then in sculling, you have single. So one person in a boat with two oars, double two guys, then or quadruple with uh, four people. So um, kind of the traditional what you think with a rowboat when you see it on TV, that's yeah. kind of sculling. Yeah, well, okay. usually when you see one person out, that's sculling. When you see a bigger boat, most a lot of people think of when they an eight goes by is what they think of as rowing. And that's uh, most high schools and colleges, people start out, in, in, you know, at least in the United States, people start rowing in fours and eights. Uh, although in Europe, you have kids who start at six, seven, eight years old with the, the sculling. Right. And is, the dragon yeah. boat here locally is not sculling. That's just the right. So that's boat. actually the largest of the canoeing sports uh, and dragon boating, as, as I'm sure every listener knows, is the second most popular sport in the world after yep. soccer. Maybe. Is that really? It is. I yeah. have no idea. Yeah. I just know from the dragon boat uh, here locally. Yeah. That, you know, so, yeah, it's a it's a uh, the fundra There's a the big race here a couple weeks ago. It's a big fundraiser for Dragon Boat Charleston. They're really kind of a cancer survivor team. Um, most of the places where they're in the country where there are a bunch of teams are places where there are a lot of Asian uh, immigrants. So mm -hmm. um, Seattle, Portland, Oregon, um, LA, San Francisco. Uh, but there's also a bunch of teams in Philly and New, and New York, I think has uh, 50 different teams now too. Yeah. But um, uh, it's become a pretty good, big uh, sport here. Nothing like you go to China and there's 70 million people a, uh, a month apparently are are involved with dragon boating, well, at least on a monthly basis. Uh, but you have like 40 million people in Indonesia and like 20 million people in Thailand. And it's, it's a uh, worldwide, supposedly there's about uh, 350, 400 million people who to dragon boat. That's uh, cool. Yeah. I, I really, that's a yeah. fun fact for the day for sure. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, but it's a, that's the largest of the canoeing sports. So you have a canoe paddle, you're on a bench seat and there's a, uh, uh, primarily you race uh, 20 person uh, boats where you have 10 bench seats and you're jammed in, you're either, you're, you're paddling either left side or right side. And there's someone right hip to hip with someone else. And you're trying not to hit elbows and hands with them. And you're right in front of you is the, the guy's back mm -hmm. uh, in, for, in, uh, in front of you. And you're, when you're racing, depending on, on the, the distance, you may be doing more than two strokes per second. So racing like a 200 meter, we go out at like 130 some strokes a minute. Whereas some of the teams that where they train year round two and three times a day, like the, the Thai and the, and the Philippines, the Chinese, they're going 140 strokes a minute for, for 200 meters. Where then for their longer races, they may still be 150, 120 strokes a minute. Uh, so very exactly together, uh, 
it's uh it's a precision is pretty amazing yeah yeah precision precision and speed mm-hmm. for sure so all right so we totally digress but yeah. i love oh, sorry. that i know sorry. i love it no yeah. that's that's what it's all about yeah. i mean so oh so wrong so uh so at the academy, um, you know, we, so we won the, those nationals, the sophomore, junior year, senior year, we had a really good boat, but we kept really not quite doing, kind of putting it together in the big races. So we ended up uh, uh, at the nationals. We, we didn't have a, a good uh, heat and rep. We ended up in the, in the B final and then it kill, killed everybody in the B final, but it kind of left a little bit of a distaste in my mouth that we hadn't done. Uh, gotten uh, in the A's. Gotten, yeah, yeah. And uh but um, also, I still wanted to see how good a rower I could be. And um, so I had a, a number of months between what my, my start date for surface warfare officer school at the Navy out in Coronado. Uh, and I was able to get special duty with the um, uh, Athletic Association at the Academy where they uh, sublet me essentially out to a uh, rowing club in Philadelphia. So I would basically train three times a day. Um, June, July until middle of August, uh, with this. And so really learning how to skull, um, and, uh, and then got stationed out in San Diego and, uh, in San Diego, I mean, it was a very, very full days with training with the surface warfare school and then engineering officer school, but I could train early, early in the morning at mission Bay, like in the dark. And then at lunchtime do lifting weights or rowing machine. And then on the weekends, I'd drive up to Newport aquatic center, a couple hour and a half North. And I would row Friday night three times on Saturday, three times on Sunday, and then drive back to uh, to San Diego to uh, for the the week of school. And that's so a, that's a pretty rigorous training. Schedule. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I, uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's really cool. Obviously, and we'll circle back to you know your practice and everything. But I think it gives you a really cool outlook about what it takes to be a professional right. athlete, what that does to your body. You know what I mean? As well as you know you probably know really good ways to recover because the training that much that often probably does, like I said, a huge number of your body. Like, how do you, how did you keep training during that process? Like, what did you, did you eat really healthy? Were you just like that young and just had those good swimmer genes, right? So you could just be like, I can't train that much. I'd be, there's no way. Great thing about being 22 is you still have this huge amount of human growth hormone, testosterone, your, your, your normal testosterone, estrogen balance, where your body really wants to heal. And ideally when you're, 12, 13, 14, 15 is just, you're in the perfectly set up, but even in early twenties, it's much, much easier to, to kind of give your body that kind of abuse and, and or training. So and I'm 35. It, it, I can't do that anymore. You, well, it, it, you have to be smarter about your recovery. You're yeah. I mean, as you're kind of alluding uh, to. Yeah. Uh, so you have to, <laughs> aware of that. Yeah, so, yeah. um, uh, the, uh, you, you have to kind of figure out in your life what makes your, what your priorities are. And yeah. so one of the big things at the Naval Academy was understanding, setting priorities and managing your time. That's some of the, or really for me, particularly as a plebe was the toughest thing. And once you can kind of figure that out, that helps you for the rest of your life. Um, and medical school was relatively easy compared to, for me, for compared to plebe year at the Academy, just because I knew What's plebe year for the academy? It's plebe year. It's the first year there where essentially. It's like knob year at the Citadel. Like it's the hardest year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, but uh, really intense, uh, intense academics. Naval Academy. It's, it's one of the top engineering schools in the, in the country uh, where I had between 22 and 23 and a half credit hours each semester of computer science, naval engineering. Did you know you uh, wanted to be a doctor at that point? Was no, that, I didn't. Like, I, did, I did not. Uh, because it sounds yeah. like you wanted to be an engineer and, you know. Well, I mean, I, I started out aerospace engineering and realized that relatively quickly. <laughs> I didn't like engineering that much. Yeah. Uh, but, NASA uh, or doctor. Like, well, actually, well, so, uh, you know, doctor was kind of always in the, the background. Because, and I think most of my siblings always felt that, you know, this what we what we really want to be. As I, when I was a kid, like half the other kids, it was like, I want to be an astronaut. Um I never wanted to be an astronaut. You never wanted to be an astronaut? No. But space scares me. I like flying. But it was always like, you know, I guess I could always be a doctor. And, yeah. and it was like all, every one of us were. And I think my dad at some point was kind of bemused saying, you know, I guess they don't really realize that there's a lot of work that goes into to doing that. It's not, right. I didn't just one day choose and, and just went to work as a doctor. But um uh, I, so going to the Academy, I, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to, uh, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do either, um, B 
be in planes or submarines. And I just, um, I felt like it was a, I had some family tradition with my grandfather was Naval Academy and mm-hmm. I had been a Navy pilot, dive bomber, uh, kind of World War II hero. And um, cool. um, I just, and with my father being a, an army officer, it was like, you know, this was something you give back to the country. And, and uh, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, but at the, at the time, and some of it was, I knew I'd get a good education my right, you have parent, a really good base yeah, now, right? Yeah, like you can yeah, do whatever you want after right. you have the Naval Academy, and, right? And there was also, I mean, my father had six children of his own and three stepchildren, and so who were relatively similar age. So when I there were, I think three of the years I was at the academy, there were six of us in either college or grad school at a time. So I was going to go someplace where they paid me to go to school. So yeah. so looking at like Princeton and Harvard and Northwestern. Uh, Could you imagine putting nine people through college in today's? Like, yeah. What is that? Yeah, on a even <laughs> five, yeah, ten million yeah. dollars a year. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and there's and there's a difference when you're a, a military physician as opposed to being a, a civilian dermatologist surgeon. So it's uh, right. The, the uh, uh, yeah. So he was. I was going to go somewhere where they paid me. So okay, cool. Uh, and then, so yeah. what made the transition from like what inspired you, or was it truly a plan B of going from engineering yeah. and military to now? Well, you know, a, a, you know, yeah, I had, doctor. A, you know, I was had, uh, so I was stationed out in San Diego and after engineering school, engineering officer school, I was um, assigned to a cruiser and I got special orders um, uh, to, in order to go to Philadelphia or to do legal, legal investigations and officer recruiting uh, really so I could train for the Olympic uh, mm-hmm. trials and for the Olympic team. And uh, so I put in a request to be to get picked up by the Navy Sports Program. There's a the, most of the other services they call it the World Class Athlete Program, and where they'll set you up someplace. Some some of the services they'll actually just they'll send you to the Olympic Training Center and you just stay there and you get. Uh, I actually did a did a job. I was very happy to to be stationed there, but it was like a, it was a forty week, hour a week job, which in the Navy is a is a uh, not. No, not a, yeah, not not a, a lot because because right? usually you're when you're on a ship you're working 18 hours a day seven seven days a week yeah, yeah uh, sure. but when I was driving from uh, San Diego to the to Philadelphia I got started about six hours later than I had planned because I was going went up to LA to see my mom and and uh, I had had all these different stops set up like the Air Force Base near Albuquerque New Mexico and and other places on the the rest of the way and I'm still trying to get there but I'm started six hours later. So it's um, three in the morning uh, in the mountains in New Mexico and I'm falling asleep. And uh, I kept pulling over to the side of the road and this is about seven and a half thousand feet. So not a whole lot of oxygen, uh, end of February. Uh, and so it's cold. And, uh, but I, so I get out, do some push-ups, jumping jacks to try to wake up. Naturally, I, who doesn't do push-ups and jumping well, jacks on the side of the road to well, stay awake? Well, this is tip number one uh, from Dr. McFarland, yeah. just saying, I love it. Well, Go ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, it was also, there, there was not, and there's a, about a hundred miles where there really isn't anything on the side of the road. And I had all my belongings and, in a in a kind of, it was a nice little car uh, called the Ensign Mobile because people get a career starter loan at your last year at the Academy. And most people get rid of the ear and just buy a car with it. So you, so okay. most of us, Ensigns, the second lieutenants, you have, you have nice cars. Nice. And uh, uh, so I had, the car was packed with basically everything I owned. Right. And so I figured, okay, well, if I pull it off the side of the road in this desolate area, someone's going to come and kill me to steal the car. Uh, but what was more dangerous, what, what, was, what was more dangerous than, uh, than, than that was apparently between the, the border, New Mexico, Arizona and Albuquerque on average, I learned from the police who I talked to later that, Every night someone crashes and dies. And that's, there's like a stretch of like almost 200 miles where every night someone crashes and dies. Yeah, because it's dark, they're typically tired. Yeah, and there's nothing, oxygen. there's nothing to see. You get yeah. mesmerized and you're also seven and a half thousand feet. There's less oxygen than you're used to. Right, right. And most people have been driving from Texas or California. So you're just tired. So anyway, so uh, before I could, I was trying to find a town to, to pull off and sleep. But uh, before I did, I fell asleep and I crashed on the side of the road. Ooh. I was very lucky. Um, and uh, slammed into a big boulder and the car was completely destroyed. Uh, I really wasn't hurt. Uh, I mean, I had nicks on my hands and feet um, and the radio. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was very sore for about a week because of basically everything was tightened up as I, right before I impacted. And um, the, uh, 
Um, so I waved down a trucker after uh, putting my glasses together and, and uh, they, they took me to the nearest gas station. The trucker took me to the nearest gas station, which was like 16 miles away. After the accident. After the, the accident. Nearest yeah. Gas station. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, and so I called the police from there. They picked me up, drove me back to the wreck and uh, to do an investigation. And then they, they, uh, they dropped me off at a motel at a Grant, New Mexico. Right. Was this is obviously thing. pre-cell phones. <clears throat> right, absolutely. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. So this is 1992. Our listeners are right, right, yeah. like, yeah. what? Back, in, yeah, yeah, back in the days. Yeah. Yeah. The pay phone. Right, that. right. <laughs> yeah, where the trucker couldn't just call the cell phone, the police on the cell phone. Right. Uh, and so um, that, for me, uh, knowing that, you know, I probably should have died in this wreck. Um, and I was really lucky not to have. Sure. Uh, what really should I be doing for the rest of my life? And so I thought really hard about it and tried to figure out how I could best make a positive impact in the world. And for me personally, I felt, you know, better for me, I, rather than being a naval officer long term, or, or at least as a combat line officer, I felt that I would do, uh, do better to become a physician or to, for a doctor. Had you been yeah. thinking about that before? Not really. That, no, it was always like just a, that was one of the, the five different options uh, after like astronaut. Said, plan B. Right, astronaut, professional, uh, lifeguard. But just like anybody uh, else, yeah. like I can be a doctor, I can yeah. be a lawyer, I can be right. right? So yes, just kind of yes. List. It's in your. It was okay. it was very high in the 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 differential list of what the options were. Yeah, wasn't that you were uh, passionate about or anything like that? At least no, it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. but uh, and so, awesome. but but uh, knowing I so I still had time combat line time that i owed to the navy and also i still wanted to do that i wanted to make the u.s rowing team and i represent the u.s at the world championships and olympics well so well so i started uh got to philadelphia and um uh so i was training like three times a day saturdays and sundays really early in the morning like monday to friday i was working 7 30 to 5 30. so that meant i could row from five to seven and again at night like six o'clock to eight o'clock at night uh, you didn't the, really have a social life at this point. Not, then, a, not right? a whole lot. Not a yeah, whole lot. How but, old yeah. were you at this time? Just 22. 22. 22, okay. 22 23. How many 22-year-olds are doing something like that? That's uh, but and then yeah. I started, so uh, I started after doing that for the first few, about six months, I, that fall started taking pre-med classes because at the academy, really most of the courses were naval engineering and I had a government major in Spanish minor, but um, I really didn't have any of the prerequisites for med school. And so it really had to start from scratch. And wow. So... Uh, Oh yeah, so the, so I totaled the totaled the car. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. Car well, just got yeah, brand so, new well, right. Well, yeah. So, but I, I with the insurance money, I was able to buy a racing single scale. Uh, but I didn't have a car in Philadelphia. So, okay. so, so part of my training was I would bike or walk everywhere. And so after six months after practice at night, I would bike up to Temple University, and where I was taking uh, chemistry, then organic chemistry, physics again. Um, and um, um, so I did that for for the the next uh, the next couple of years, and then um, got out of the Navy and uh, started doing medical research at University of Pennsylvania, but was still rowing. Got invited to um, to train at the uh, the U.S. Sculling Center, which at the time was Occoquan, Virginia. Uh, went down there for six months. They were moving from there to Augusta, Georgia. So I went went there. Was able to get a six month grant to do diabetes research at the NIH. So yeah. real quick, so yeah. that just to me, just to kind of earmark this, but that takes a lot of like time and energy and work ethic. Like where did that, where did that come from? Like how, what makes you want to work from 7.30 till five, also row in the morning, in the afternoon and do all this stuff. All the, like where, like, is that just... Yeah. That's just how you woke up and you're just like, hey, that's just my work. You know, I think that's just who I am as a person. Like, I just want to dig into that. I just think that's really cool. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I still, I mean, I, I the government, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, had, uh, I mean, the taxpayer had paid for my education. So I really felt I needed to do a really good job as long as I was in the Navy. So I was going to do the the best job I could with uh, when I was in, in uh, the, the Navy job. I was a lieutenant. The junior grade lieutenant. Right. So you committed um, to this. Yeah, yeah, if I'm that's, committed right. to this, yeah, I'm gonna that, that was that was it was, it was my it was my duty to do a good job. Yeah. With that. Right. Uh, so when I was there, I did the absolute best job I could. My passion, what I really loved doing was the rowing. And I was really still trying to see I wanted to see how good I could get. And so mm -hmm. trying to one of the the wacky things with with rowing is 
when you really hit everything exactly right, and there are other sports this too, where it feels effortless, where it feels, I mean, some people describe it as swing, like when you have a crew together. Yeah, like Tom Brady, but, right? They say everything slows down. You can yeah, touch down, yeah. right? Like that but, kind of yeah. moment. And, and sure. so it, it's... Uh, in the zone. I mean, and it, there's a there's this kind of pursuit of perfection where you can try to to perfect yourself. And and I I mean also I wanted to do that naturally. I know there were people who were doing different things, like take maybe doing performance enhancing drugs. Didn't doesn't happen really very much in the U.S. for for rowing, but certainly in in other countries it did. Mm-hmm. But um, I I also was told you know you should lose weight and become a lightweight rower. Because uh, most of the most of the lightweight rowers are really my height, but were 159 pounds. Yeah, it's like Olympic weightlifting, right? right. Or, or exactly. boxing. Exactly. The better I am, the more right. advantageous. Right. And then you move your yeah. way up after you become right. world champ right. or whatever. And that, but, but I always felt that if I did that, I would be losing muscle mass in order to do it, and I would probably not be quite as fast. So even though I might be more competitive initially as a lightweight rower, I, I would be violating that try to be as good as I could be. And so your idea yeah. of what. Yeah. Let's call it perfection right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right? It's not yeah, absolutely like yeah. the best, yeah. your potential. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, and the neat thing was, is when you hit it exactly right, when your body angle, when you're timing, when moving, you're pulling your, the boat toward you as your arms are going out, you're reaching out and catching with both the, the blades hitting the water at the pre- really exact precise timing. And it, and you catch it just right. And your body levers over correctly it really feels effortless. It's like you're flying. And uh, I'm sure that's an addictive feeling. It is. Itself, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, like and a I, good golf yeah. swing, right? People probably can yeah, exactly. know what that yes. feels like. And if you did that 15 yeah. times in a row or 20 times in a row, exactly. or 100 times in a yeah. row, like you're going to continue to pursue right. that feeling. Yeah. And yeah, and if you can do it once, you can do it over and over again. And it's like Larry Bird said, if you can make one basket, you can make everyone. Yeah. As long as you haven't paid close enough attention and focus. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's not, I don't think there's, there's a not, I mean, the, the, the individual little P parts are slightly different sport to sport, but the mentality of trying to make sure your body does what your brain is telling it and paying attention to coaching and doing the exact right thing over and over again, until your, that becomes your body's norm. Um, that's uh, that was, it was part of the process of, and, and, and some of it's, it's uh, when you start doing that, you get better and, and you win races and, and, uh, and that's fun. So and that's, uh, I think it's super interesting. Yeah. And for me, it's like, what I picture your perfection as this circle, it's like a pie, mm-hmm. right? And there's all these pieces of the pie that need to be perfectly aligned to make mm-hmm. you perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. And in your opinion, obviously age has something to do with it, but like, what are all the things that needed to align there? Like, did you need to have, like you said, muscle mass, you needed to do weight training. Yeah. Did you have to sleep a certain amount? Did you have to have certain kinds of nutrition if you can kind of bring yourself back to there yeah. what were all the things that you did to have that performance level yeah so i guess one of the biggest things is, is recovery so so sleep so no matter what else was going on you i knew that i really needed to force myself to be in bed and try to be asleep at 10 o'clock every night. let everyone so. listen that is the first thing he mentioned and nobody talks about that first i think that's awesome yeah. everybody's like no i need to be in the gym more what supplements do, what supplements yeah. do I need? Right. No, it's like yeah. literally the first thing you said, and I think that's just, that's why we align. Man, that's awesome. It's sleep. sleep yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely. And the uh, I mean, if you as you so that part of the recovery mechanism, the one the, for me, the most important thing was sleep, and then you also have the nutrition side, and and at that the, there were a number of years where I mean, doing medical research doesn't really pay very much at all. There there years where uh, really for uh, the recovery uh, well well, well, so you throw you throw a throw a carton of uh, like a pound of pasta in and you have a tune a a tin of uh, or can of tuna fish and half of a a jar of of a of pasta sauce and maybe and 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 maybe (laughs) maybe half of a of a one of those little containers of a cottage cheese and you mix it together and so you have your protein you have your fat you have your carbs cottage and cheese mixed it yeah it makes it cre- creamy it's like a, it's almost like a like a, a vodka sauce like a it's kind of like a, a creamy i may have to try sauce. that yeah so so yeah so that. so that's low fat low fat high protein yep um but uh, i definitely was not shirking away from eating fat at those days because you really needed all the different sources of, of energy 
and so yeah. Yeah, yeah and so i mean also sometimes you're trying you, you have a meal that's like it's a, this or you're really enjoying this meal but a lot of time when you're training like that it's really you're fueling your engine and so you don't really care so much how it tastes you, you got to get the protein and the carbs and i think and that's really powerful like for me thinking about food not as a reward but literally as fuel yeah. instead right is a tough transition to make mm -hmm. like in the day and age we have now like food is definitely a, a reward you know what i mean i think it's really cool to have food and we don't do this, honestly, let's call it in America either, is like food is a social gathering right. sometimes. Everyone sits yeah. down, eats, and like that's kind of okay. But mm -hmm. like food, literally like I did a good job today. I deserve a milkshake at Chick-fil-A or a bowl of right. ice cream. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's what I do. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, did it last week. But I mean, and I think training is a big component of that. Like exercise is good in of itself, but I love that exercise also does that. It like it makes you think about food perhaps in a kind of different way that I need to I need because I want to perform well tomorrow in whatever sport I'm doing or however I'm working out. I sometimes will stop myself, be like, no, I'm gonna I want to feel good tomorrow. I want to continue training that way I want to. So I'm gonna eat some cleaner food or I'm gonna eat some better food. Um, kind of two things to that you know we talk a lot about in our practice too with our patients is trying to change that frame of mindset from food is rewards, food is yeah. fuel. Yeah. Sorry. Another tangent by me. Okay. So nutrition, sleep, what about uh, anything else? Flexi flexibility training. So uh, particularly the Olympic year and the, and the next year, so 96 and 97, when I was in the one, the Olympic trials, and then uh, the next year with the world championship team, the, um, the flexibility training. So I think you need all flexibility to sit and row. Right? Yeah, well, like, yeah, you know, if, yeah. I, if, if I was six foot ten, I, I wouldn't have to to be as flexible. But the I was I was a really tiny heavyweight rower. I mean, I was six to one hundred and ninety three pounds. Most of the guys I was racing against were six five to six ten, and uh, just having that extra leverage, where particularly when you're getting up to the catch where you're, you're bringing the, your, your, your bot, your butt is getting approaching your heels and essentially like you're doing a squat or, uh, the, 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 butt, the farther, the closer your glutes are to your heels, mm -hmm. the less leverage you have. I mean, if the, if you're, if you're at, if you do a hack squat, if you're, if you're only getting to a 45 degree bend in your knees, you can lift a lot more weight than if you do but to heel squat, like if you're all the way doing a crazy deep squat, that makes sense. Yeah. Nowadays, I would worry about my meniscus busting out. Yeah. But the, um, but to get that extra couple inches on the slide to get that longer arc through the water, where I can get that little bit more leverage to match up with someone who's six eight or six ten, uh, I had to train myself to be able to have an explosive um, uh, load with the or with the from the the quads and hamstrings and calves and how did you do that? that what kind of stuff did you use so we, we did uh lots of deep squat training lots of plyometric training uh we'd have these three and a half hour weightlifting sessions where we would do like sets of like on the like a, a total row machine i think the trx is is a or you can it's a essentially it's like a rowing machine but with a big weight stack instead of the flywheel and so you've oh, heard of that. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Yeah. I want one. Yeah. yeah. And so it was great. It was a great uh, device. And so basically you do. Do they still yeah. exist? Now they do. Is. Although we, uh, they're not cheap, but, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was I'll, like a two I'll, or three thousand dollars. Definitely device, tag that great. in the show notes. Like um, yeah, so that there's uh what was it called? Sorry. So to total row, total uh, row? machine, okay. but it basically it's like, instead of that, that uh, line, instead of being attached to the flywheels is basically yeah. the pulleys that with a big weight stack. And so you would do like, might have a 250 pound stack. And so you're doing, we would do like a set of 55 of those, but it would be, it would take you 20 minutes to do the set of 55. So you're doing all out explosive and then you're kind of resting, but you're also stopping it from crashing in. So you have a little bit of a negative on all your- So you're just your working the movement pattern that was your sport, right. just loaded. Right. Uh, and then we do these stupid, uh, these back extension where you had your legs were, strapped in but you your body your entire body would be hanging straight down you'd have like a 150 170 pounds weight some of the bigger guys were have bigger where then you're doing this back extension coming hyper extending your back with that 150 100. nowadays i look at that so like how did i did i not blow my 
L5. Because you just, trained that modality every I, I day, right? It. I yeah. did, yeah. Because you can do, yeah, right, it's right. a big thing. Like you yeah. can do, you have to build that movement isn't inherently bad in and of itself. Right. It's bad if you do it, you've never done it before, and then you load it with 150 And it's, it's, yeah. it took nine <laughs> yeah. years of training to get to that, to get exactly. to that point. Exactly. So yeah. people, I mean, I feel like sometimes it's the stuff we talk about here that people sometimes think, oh man, I'm never going to be able to do that, or I can't do that, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. Like, yes, under certain circumstances, you can hurt yourself, but if you train this stuff well and progressively you can do so many things that you maybe thought you couldn't before yeah. so um yeah i could <laughs> you picture that movement i'm sure a lot of people are like oh my god don't ever do that but you yeah. guys did it all the time and we did, did it well. all the time and then yeah. you, then you'd finish up this three-hour wait session where the the last thing you would do would be a set of 500 box jumps so basically you had these boxes that were about <laughs> yeah. two and a half feet high and you would jump down and, hit and, 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 and jump up to the next box and that's one. So you do a set of 500 would be, that would be your finishing up. Then you'd go out in the water and row like 12 strokes a minute. Uh, just so super low stroke rating where you're trying to be explosive. Well, everything in your whole body is jello by that time. That's and, awesome. But you're trying to get your body to tie all that exhaustion into doing that exact motion correctly. Um, so, yeah. But that was like a two or three time a week sessions there. Yeah. I was reading, um, I don't remember what book it was, um, but it was, um, basically talking about like, oh, it was honestly talking about um, law enforcement training. And with a friend of mine, he said, like, he wanted to be able to turn it, put a tourniquet on after doing like, let's call it 500 box jumps. Yeah. Because when your body is under stress, like when you have a really life and death situation, or when you're trying to perform professional level, when you're probably totally gassed, you want your body to remember how to do that perfect stroke, yeah. even under the kind of most dire circumstances yeah. or total fatigue and you've got to train absolutely. that just like anything else so absolutely and train although, specific to the sport although with the rowing you can kind of turn your brain off because at a certain point you're it's muscle memory and yeah. all you have to have is kind of still the desire and being being willing to to go through the amount of pain when you're really near the end of a race to to beat the people around you but the law enforcement in addition to if you're exhausted you still have to have the mental capability right. to and they train that to, too right, right? to, to yeah. de-escalate a situation as opposed to tackling somebody where, sure. where you, yeah. I mean, so there's a, there's uh, some differences. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And no, so there's with, a, with all of the, on the military or law enforcement side, it's yeah. when the, the entire sleep deprivation exhaustion thing where you still have to be really mentally functioning that that's where kind of the medical training, uh, that type of being able to keep continue when you're exhausted is, is super important. Yeah. Because, so um, I just don't want to run out of time because this thing yeah. literally cut us Oops, off at an gotcha. hour. No, it's good. Gotcha. Sorry. So um, no, I love yeah. it. That's me and Robert didn't talk about anything we wanted to talk about, but it was still a really good podcast. <laughs> so um, let's just fast forward your, you know, what brought you into winning health? What brought you into Charleston? Yeah. Like, where's like, yeah. so, is this your first practice? No, yeah, well, I so I, I, so okay. after in med school, you know, I really wanted to be a, um, and I, like, I, hold on yeah. one more thing. And yeah. why did you choose this thing's really important? Yeah. I want to get to, why did you choose to become an orthopedic doctor that doesn't do surgery? I think that's really important yeah. to talk so about. So that was, there was, that was an evolution, uh, over quite a few years as I, I did, um, uh, in medical school and going in, I really wanted to be a family doctor and I wanted, and I wanted to, to do everything. I enjoyed doing procedures. I enjoyed taking care of kids. I enjoyed, really enjoyed taking care of uh, elderly. Uh, I mean, I think geriatric elderly patients are still kind of my favorite patient groups, the, the best stories. Um, but um, so I wanted to get the very best training to be the best family doctor. And so I went to, so Dartmouth Medical School has this program in across New England where you are get training, where you do tons of deliveries. So you, when you're in the hospital, you're the obstetrician on call. Then you're the- So you delivered babies. Uh, about 160 regular deliveries and then probably assisted on about the equal amount of C-sections. That's cool. Uh, and then uh, you're, you're, you're doing psychiatry and uh, you do dentistry. <laughs> so there's also, there's not enough dentists in New Hampshire and Maine. So you, once a month, you're the, the dentist who works with, the dental assistant who works with, the dentist, so learning how to like the Swiss Army knife of absolutely right. That's what that's what kind of Swiss rural family medicine knife. is. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, so then uh, I worked in an underserved medical clinic after residency, and so after left Maine, and then worked kind of inner city. Uh, did that for four years, and um, what I, I realized that you know, I mean, I like what I'm doing, but what I really enjoy is more the kind of the the sports injuries, but also generally the musculoskeletal injuries, the shoulder pain, someone injured their knee, ankle, they've had kind of neck injury. 
I really enjoyed that a lot more than the kind of the, the, the medicine discussions on over and over again with the diabetes and blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though I knew it was very valuable to have those, what I personally enjoyed the most was the, the musculoskeletal sports side. And so I get people up, get them moving. Yeah, like, I can't do yeah, this. Now yeah. I get you to the point where you can do this. Right. Right. And okay, so cool. the, uh, really trying to keep, to get people moving and also, um, uh, tried trying to do that without having to do a surgery because I had, uh, I had a really kind of favorite landlord who actually became like a father figure. Uh, and, uh, uh, someone talked him into doing a hip replacement. He was otherwise healthy in his late eighties and he was dead a week later from infection in his hip from, from the, after the replacement. And so, and I ha kept having these stories where, you know, you'd have after a knee replacement, maybe half of people would be happy with their replacement. And then, uh, the, of the, the remaining 50% half would say, you know, my pain is just as bad. And some people would say my pain's worse. And so it's like, okay, well, this, so this isn't, this can be the answer, the right answer for the right patient with the right condition, but there's lots of people who may do better without surgery. And so I did a, um, got a, an orthopedic sports fellowship for primary care sports medicine sports fellowship with the medical college of Virginia down in Virginia and DC. Mm -hmm. We were kind of tied at the hip with the military's fellowship. So did a ton of work at Walter Reed and, and Bethesda teaching residents and med students and, and really learning from from the best primary care sports medicine docs in in, uh, in the world. And, uh, and these are the ones you, yeah. again, aren't doing. And right. Not recommending surgery. Yeah. Not surgery yeah. or the referring yeah. out when it's appropriate, obvious. And we're just right. going to just say that's a given. No yeah. What we say, right? Absolutely. Certain people are appropriate. Yeah. But um, there's obviously other choices. Right. And these people are usually yeah. recommending those other choices. Right. And, and there's a lot of different procedures that are not officially surgical, where you'll go in as long as you can find if you know how to use like musculoskeletal ultrasound, you can go in to where there's a partial tear in the rotator cuff that maybe you have that most patients respond really well to physical therapy, but maybe you have that one patient who doesn't respond so well and they have, maybe there's some scar tissue in that partially yeah. torn. Uh, and you can go in there and break up the scar tissue with the needle as long as you can see exactly where it is. Hold and, on, so real quick, yeah. sorry, so, our audience. Just listen, he had, he had to use, he had to use a needle to break up scar tissue. Just want to say that foam rolling yeah. and massage yeah. and any kind of manual techniques that isn't a needle or scalpel is not going to break up scar tissue. That, yeah, Sorry, absolutely. continue. No, a lot of people right. think that. Yeah. And I just want yeah. to like, you know, it's yeah. good to say yeah. that. Oh, man. We just no. lost all of our problems. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's just, oh. it just, it's really important to know that because it yeah, really absolutely. people think that yeah. they get taught that a lot from this is the yeah. PT side of you things that uh, we just, I hear yeah. a lot in my clinic. And it's like, man, you, you need. Yeah, you need a scalpel yeah. or a needle to break those things up. But yeah, so yeah. obviously having yeah. that kind of, I think that's really cool yeah. to have an alternative where they don't need to go in and perhaps create more scar tissue right. in some cases. Yeah. And then sometimes dry needling is can work. Sometimes if you have deeper scar tissue, uh, I do like platelet-rich plasma injections yeah. where you go in and, and you kind of break up some scar tissue, but also kind of restart the healing process. Um, and um, actually the data on that for 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 a number of different conditions is actually better than kind of steroids and kind of the cartilage gel that people inject in the knees and hips. Uh, data right now is better for PRP as long as you remove the white cells out for, for arthritis for long-term pain relief. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so anyway, so I, um, with the, uh, on getting back to the sports side and how I got here. Uh, so after the fellowship, um, I really kind of had my dream job where I was working, I was taking care of the Washington national soccer team in DC, or excuse me, the, the DC United, the DC United yep. for spring training, taking care of the nationals, um, teaching med students and residents at like four different hospitals. And it was a blast, except I was spending three hours a day in the car. And my wife was driving uh, our uh, uh, then three or four year old to uh, to nursery school, which was 18 miles away. But if three she left, hours of commuting a day. Yeah. Well, so I if, listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I thought I was going to usually uh, what when I'm driving to work, I'm, I'm trying to teach myself different languages, like on a 20 minute drive back and forth. But I teaching thought yourself it, a different language. Yeah. That's what I did in, in Maine. And when I was in Philadelphia and, and uh, in New Hampshire, that's what I was, or in uh, Rhode Island, I was doing that. But the, uh, you just never stop. It's like, man, as soon as you got one, well, two, there's too many things to learn. But, I agree uh, with you. That's but, um, but if, if I left at five in the morning to get one of these hospitals, I, I could get there in 29, 30 minutes, depending on the hospital. If but if I left at six fifteen, it would take yeah. two hours to get there. Uh, so, uh, after training room at DC United, after a game, you're getting out like at 1230 or one in the morning 
and invariably they shut down one or two lanes on 95 or route 66 outside of DC. And then it takes you an hour and a half to get home at one in the morning. Yeah. And then you have to wake up at 4:45 to get in the car to drive to the hospital a few hours later. So, um, that's not sustainable. Yeah, my wife got really sick of that yeah. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, and it was, it was wearing on me too. But so we came down here, we had done, uh, about five years of research trying to figure out where to live and looked at the top, uh, uh, 50 places on the East coast for best places to live and cultural towns and well, uh, college towns and, yeah. and Charleston. We fell in love with Charleston. Uh, I mean, it was kind of a funky list, but the top five or 10, but uh, Charleston came out on top. How long has your practice been here? Uh, well, I started in, in Mount Pleasant. I started actually last week was four years ago. Nice. Uh, I started in, thank you. Started in 2011, uh, with the, there's a big, uh, primary care group, North of town, North Charleston, Somerville, uh, Monk's corner called Palmetto primary care. So I was their ortho sports guy for a few years there before I uh, moving closer to home to, uh, to start my own practice here. That's really cool. So, um, we'll get back to the nitty gritty I'm gonna, and I'm gonna do some spitfire questions. So what would you consider the definition of health? So a healthy person is what? Someone who can do the physical activities that they enjoy whenever they want to do them. It was very similar to yeah. mine. Mine got cut off, I think, but it was like very similar because it was just like, yeah. for me, health is, you know, somebody who's completely limitless, right? Mm -hmm. is who, can, yeah. who can move about their environment in whatever way they choose and, you know, is more stopped by, let's call it mental fear or, or things yeah. like that as opposed to their physical limitations. So that's, uh, that's, that's really cool. Okay. Spitfire. Ready? Mm -hmm. okay. Absolutely. All right. What are you the best at besides accomplishing tasks, obviously, but what are everything. you the best at? <laughs> the best uh, at everything. You know, uh, <laughs> trying to get a lot of fitness training done in a very little amount of time to maximizing fitness with a very limited amount of, uh, of training time. And how do you do that? Uh, practice. I mean, it's, it's there, there, I do a lot of, uh, high intensity interval training. Yep. Um, the, um, I will do rowing machine or elliptical machine from after my kids are asleep, like 10 30 to 11 30. Give me a sample sometimes. workout of that could be really quick that I could do on a row machine. Uh, so a minute on at basically is pretty much as hard as you can go for about a minute and then for, for about for a minute sure. and then taking 30 seconds off and doing that 10 of those in a row. And so you have 15 that minutes, 15 minutes there and you're, and you're okay. really fried, you're right. really fried for the day. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. If I, that's my only workout for the absolutely, day, you're saying absolutely. that's enough yeah, yeah. to keep yeah, me yeah. So that's, that's Yeah. So that's close to max workout. Yeah. That, I wouldn't do that every day. That might be like a once or twice a week thing. Right. But I mean, if, if you were doing something on a, on a daily basis and you only had 20 minutes, yep. uh, doing kind of three quarter pressure on the rowing machine for, um, a minute on 30 seconds off. Yep. Uh, would pretty close to get you there in 20 minutes. That's uh, cool. Yeah, that's cool. I want to point out that he said that frying yourself once to twice a week is okay, but yeah. frying yourself six to seven days. That's a week, how you get hurt. You mean, yeah. 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 Maybe yeah. that's what a lot of the CrossFit community does. Is that what you're trying to potentially? You maybe okay. I wasn't saying CrossFit specifically. Yeah. Yeah. We are recording this in a CrossFit gym. Right. <laughs> CrossFit has been actually, I have to say, has been really good for my practice. I yeah. Mean, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, if you do CrossFit right, the intensity yeah. is supposed to be modulated and done correctly. But it's good to know that you should go all out twice a week, yeah. but probably keep those all-out efforts to once or twice a week. Yeah. And yes. try to seventy-five percent yes. is a good rule, right? It's yeah. okay to go seventy-five percent. You'll still get your gains, bro. Don't worry. All right. <laughs> so um, next one, what do you suck at? Uh, uh, saying no when people ask for. Can for you, you to come can, on the can, podcast? Yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, I'm super happy to do this, but but yeah. saying no when when for for different activities, I, I I I know life is life is short, and so I kind of I want to do everything, but yep. it still is a constant. Okay, well, what what's in the table priorities in the head? You got to make sure. Okay, if I'm not working, first off, the wife and kids have to come first, mm -hmm. and then uh, and then other activities. But it's it's sometimes it's hard to to. Uh, to say no when someone says, Hey, there's, there's this activity here or this, there's a race here. Can you, Hey, will you come to my row event last minute? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when, yeah. when, when you're, when, you're, uh, when your sciatica is acting up. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you did great, <laughs> man. That was awesome. We'll do that again next year. That's, that sounds, that was fun. That was um, fun. so what, oh, here we go. This is, um, we'll try to keep this short, but who is the most influential person that kind of affected your medical career? Like, 
that kind of maybe inspired you or, or even like your Olympic, like, you know what I mean? That started you on this journey. If you could, let's wow. kind of pick one person um, that. You know what? Uh, I mean, I was, when I was in residency, family medicine residency, there was a kind of Dan Onion, uh, Dr. Onion had been a, uh, and he was like a Harvard undergrad, Harvard, everything for, for med school and residency and, and was a, essentially was a, a cardiologist, uh, before they had cardiology fellowships, but he decided, you know, he really wanted to, to do the, the rural, more the rural lifestyle where he could do everything. And, um, but, um, just because we were, I was a family medicine resident didn't mean, didn't, that didn't mean I didn't have to know that everything that a cardiologist in training didn't know, mm-hmm. or that a neurologist in training didn't know. So, so, uh, basically feeling like being where family, being primary care is not a step down from all the specialties. It's harder because you have to know at least a certain level of what what these conditions are neurologically, what do like dermatology. Right? You, have to do, you have to do some of everything, which to do well is super, super challenging. It's, it's actually, in my, in my mind, it's easier to, to specialize and, and just do one or two or three things as opposed to, as opposed to trying to keep up to date with neurology and, and physiology, especially the people who are still doing OB. Yeah. And I, I can't believe that some, that here's something that will be, people will be controversial for sure, but I still yeah. want to bring okay. it up. You yeah. can answer this if you want to yeah. or not, but like, do you think that's really happening nowadays? I feel like if you go to a primary care physician now, what are they doing? They're basically referring you out yeah. as soon as possible. They're not even yeah. maybe attempting to address that issue right there, you know, right it's, then. It's, and know about it. it's such a specialty yeah. world now. It's a, it's a mix. I mean, I, I think, um, I think you find the people that are who are really attracted to doing everything tend to be more a little bit more rural, uh, and and some of it is there's um, depending on the type of practice you have if you're kind of forced into seeing I mean some of these people I mean there's there's one doc up in in Somerville who sees ninety patients a day yeah and how do you do uh, it effectively that's another question is I mean, it the system as opposed yeah, to is it the practitioner yeah. and so I, I think to to really to really do everything and stay up to date a you have to constantly be reading you have to be how do you read when you see 90 people how much paperwork did that person have to do as well right Mm -hmm. uh but i mean i think to do it well yet you'd have to be really have to be a genius to to, and have maximized everything as far as time wise i i can't i can't do that um so for me uh i think if i'm to to really do a good evaluation brand new patient i need to spend an hour with somebody i mean going over every all their the movements going through the history what so not just what the injury is but what's the root cause of the injury so they don't keep getting getting the same injury over and over again that sounds like a smart uh, way to go right there are there are still some docs out there who really are thorough yeah. and, and who do have a good breadth of knowledge it's just for us you, too as pts and chiros we yeah. deal with the same thing right yeah. like they're also seeing 20 people in a day or, or sometimes chiro yeah. seeing even more of a volume, yeah. right and not yeah. doing full hour-long exams right. so it's really we can all kind of agree that all three of us do hour-long exams with right. our patients new patient yeah the new follow patients. Up, it's not that long yeah right. no of course yeah, yeah. new patients but the, the evaluation didn't need to take that long so yeah Really cool. I mean, sometimes you don't realize what the real answers are until like, you're walking out the door and as they call it, the, the, uh, the doorknob question, uh, it's like, Oh, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. And it's like, uh, Oh, <laughs> yeah. or sometimes yeah. like after a couple yeah. visits, right? It's like, right. You know what I mean? Right. Like squeaky yeah. door, like, Oh, I got this taken care of. Yeah. Oh, it's this. Oh man. The whole time it was your back or, yeah. you know what or I mean? should like, I worry that my left arm is going numb and I have chest pain when I'm yeah. doing this? It's like, uh, yeah. let's, let me come back in and we'll yeah. talk a little bit more. By the way, I dislocated my uh, shoulder and I didn't tell you that, but I, right. you know, yeah. goodness. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, what is the number one thing the public should do to maintain their health and fitness? Do some my kind friend. of moving activity every single day. So cool. ex- exercise, really the, the philosophy being exercise is medicine. Cool. Awesome. Um, here are the fun ones. Okay. okay. You ready? What is your walkout song? So if you came out on stage, <laughs> Dr. Fights. McMarlin, you know, what is like, you know, I, the tiger, you know, if you're in a cage match, <laughs> I'm going to restructure that fighting next. I'm going to restructure that question. Yes. Oh my goodness. I, I, man, I, we can come back. To you know, I, I have, that would, that would change day to day. I mean, some of it, some, some days where you're doing kind of mental and physical recovery day, it's, it would be, it would be a slow song. Other days, it's uh, getting ready. It'd be Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. Uh, 
but um I gotta think about that one. Okay, so I'm no, sorry. No, let's get I, I failed on that one. <laughs> These are more more interesting ones. What's your favorite cartoon? This could be as a kid. It could be I watch cartoons. Oh so it's man, okay to say you know. So as a, as a really young kid, and this ages kind of ages me, is the uh, Speed Racer was uh, was one of that my favorite cartoons. Yeah. That was great. They tried to do that movie, and it was terrible. Yeah, it was yeah, not yeah, a very good movie. Yeah, I did. I did sorry, fans. All right, we're running out of time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. McMarlin. Winning health. Go check him out. He's awesome. We appreciate everyone listening. What's up, everybody? Eve here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Charleston Podcast. If you did, we would love for you to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. And please leave us any comments. We're always looking to improve or recommend a guest. Yes, we take recommendations. Also, if you want to learn a little bit more about us, and our health and human performance clinic where we do physical therapy and performance training please go check out made to move pt.com again that's made the number two move pt.com thanks so much talk to you soon